Listener Production. Marta Dusseldorp is one of Australia's best-known and loved actors. From stage to screen, and now with production credits to boot, Dusseldorp's latest project, Bay of Fires, premieres tomorrow night on ABC television. Bay of Fires is set on the west coast of Tasmania, a place that Dusseldorp herself discovered in the depths of the pandemic. It was there, hiding away from the world, that she first began the conversations that would result in this thrilling story of a woman who also finds herself fleeing the world as she knew it. In this conversation, I found Marta Dusseldorp thoughtful and generous and and pointed and took me and hopefully all of you so gently through her own career journey and the honing of her craft as an actor. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first... Here is my conversation with Marta Dusseldorp. And just a heads up that there is a very brief mention of suicide in our conversation. And please proceed with caution. Marta Dusseldorp, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you, especially uh, very much on the eve of the premiere of Bay of Fires. For those who aren't aware of your upcoming project, tell us about it. Uh, Bay of Fires is an eight-part series. It uh, was completely shot on the west coast of Tasmania and it'll be on the ABC this Sunday at 8.30pm. Tell me about shooting in Tasmania because it's it's interesting when I think about Australian production. I've just come off watching eight episodes of Deadlock, which was also uh, shot in Tasmania, which has yeah. been, I've got to say, despite the sometimes gory storyline, I caught myself looking at beautiful cliffs and landscapes a lot of the time too. Tell me yeah. about the experience of shooting down there. Well, it's very different to Deadlock. Deadlock was shot in Hobart and around Hobart. So we are doing something completely other, Uh, not better or worse, just different. Uh, So we're on the west coast of Tassie in a really, really small remote Mm. place. Um, It takes about three and a half to four hours to drive there. And as you drive, you go through freeway, uh, you hit the last light, I think, three hours before you hit Queenstown. So all the lights go, um, traffic lights, any kind of thing that might be related to any sort of city civilization, And you go through tundra, rainforest, uh, ragged rocks. We were in the middle of winter, so in the first episode you'll see that I hit snow and that's at uh, Derwent Bridge. So incredibly cold up there. And then you go down into these huge lakes, with surrounding mountains and it is, well, takes your breath away. I was touring with my husband. We had a theatre company running during the pandemic and we were touring Venus and Adonis up in the very north of Tassie. And meanwhile, Andrew Knight and Max Down and myself have been talking about Bay of Fires. ABC had developed it. We were in the middle of a very deep development of it. 
And Ben said, oh, I think I know where you could shoot this. Have you ever been to Zeehan? I said, no, I don't. What is that? He said, oh, it's an old gold mining town. Was supposed to be the capital of of Tasmania at one point. It had 3,000 people. It was groaning. It was like Deadwood. I don't know if you've ever seen that series, but it was a one-road town with a... The Gaiety Theatre, which is one of the oldest theatres in Tasmania other than the Theatre Royal, and it has a balcony. You can almost imagine Swearingen standing on the top of it. So as we drove in, it just, I went, oh, my goodness, is this real? Looks like a Hollywood set. So I found the the mayor of the town, Phil Vickers, and I said, hey, Phil, how would you feel about shooting a, letting us shoot an eight-part television series of the 150 cast and crew in this main street of Zan, and he said, here's the key, tell me what I can do to help. And the rest, as they say, is history. That is just incredible. I feel like I can see it in my... I can see it in my mind's eye after that after that description, but I've got to say I've never heard of Zian. That is a first for me as well. Tell me about your process of getting to know a new character because tomorrow night we all get to know Stella Heikkinen, but for you this has been a process that's been happening for a lot longer than the rest of us. How do you start to think about a new character, especially someone who you're going to be acquainted with for a whole lot of shooting to make eight episodes? Well, Andrew and I had been talking for a while uh, on and off, you know, between Jack Irish seasons. And I said, I would love to create something original with you. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure. He told me later he never, he was just trying to get me off the phone. <laughs> In many ways, a lot of the characters I've played are, are deeply serious people, you know, who are dealing with really big big issues, you know, when you're in the DPP like Janet King, you're dealing with the worst types of crimes that can happen to humanity within a community. Mm. And when you're playing Linda Hillier, uh, the journalist in Jack Irish, she's also hunting for the truth and um, she was a little bit funny but mainly she was just relentlessly uh, looking for justice. And then on A Place to Call Home, Sarah Adams, of course, was a Holocaust survivor and dealing with this uh, outrageous family that was this aristocracy and she came from working class. So it was, you know, all of those those roles had a sort of dewiness to them. So I did want to create a character that showed another side of me Uh, as a performer, I suppose, not for any other reason except we thought it might be a bit delightful. I'm not really out there pitching myself. I'm more just saying there's this whole other part of being a woman that I want to share with you and part of that is being a hopeless mother. So I really wanted to... um, emulate that idea that as as mothers we do our very best you know but actually we can be equally shit to both our kids um and that's a line in the in the series that I absolutely love and it always gets a laugh because luckily I've been able to see this publicly through Sydney Film Festival picked us up for our world premiere and then we've been taking it all around the east coast of Australia and into those communities where we shot so it's as close to myself as I've ever played on screen, for better yeah, or wow. for worse. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah, that must feel quite um, quite vulnerable, yes. knowing that something closer to who the real you is rather than yeah. purely a character is, is, is going out into the world at large. I mean, you always make it a character because I'm not there for therapy and I'm certainly not there to, to my life is boring and who I am is not interesting either. So she is slightly heightened. She's more belligerent. And what I love about Stella is she's just not listening. 
She just is not listening and it's only going to get worse and worse for her the more she doesn't listen. So I did enjoy that, playing that uh, city woman who who's run big companies and knows how to handle a situation until she absolutely doesn't. And then we reveal where she is and who these people around her are. And it's much worse than the Chechens who are coming to to kill her. So that's it's exciting. Mm. You mentioned just earlier both Janet King and, and Jack Irish and uh, also A Place to Call Home. I, I want to take you back, well back, uh, before those as well and, and working mm. on, on early projects on, on All Saints and on Blackjack. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about those early days as a working actor and your sort of early experiences of Australian TV? Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to know now, with so much experience under your belt, how those early perceptions stack up against what life working in Australian TV ended up being like. I don't really remember those days because each job you do, mm. you think it's the last. You think uh, no one's ever going to want to hire you again. Or if they do, uh, you'll do it completely mm. differently. But I think too that in each experience you gather, shed, slightly maybe evolve, and then you keep going. So I can't really separate any of it. It's been this long, gorgeous, complicated, disruptive walk. Uh, Sometimes it's a run, sometimes it's a crawl, and sometimes you just want to stop and and close yourself in a, in a cave and uh, not come out. So it's all sorts of things. I mean, back in those days, when I think of All Saints, my goodness, uh, mm. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't feel very comfortable. Um, I was worried about what I looked like only because people told me I should but I didn't feel that deep down in myself. I didn't care, um, but I knew I should. I loved it with all of my heart and soul. I couldn't think of anything else I would rather do. When I would be on set or on stage, time would suspend and I would forget that there was any other way to be. Uh, Originally, and I have spoken about this in the past, Uh, My brother passed away when he was very young and I was too. And I felt like the safest place to be was in someone else's skin because I didn't understand Mm. that sort of pain and I didn't know why that could happen. I was still processing it, I suppose. So I was a ballet dancer and I would dance it out, be it jazz or ballet or character or whatever it was. I'd just disappear. Then I went on the stage and disappear. But what I did find was an audience who were there to receive it and were grateful for it and needed it in their own lives. So I had a purpose. I was a, I was a server, you know, um, and that's what we are as artists. We, we serve our audience. And I felt really good in that space. It made me uh, feel useful, I suppose, as a young woman. And, uh, you know, eventually our family healed and I have two beautiful brothers Uh, Tom and Joe, who are both very successful in their own right now, and a gorgeous older sister who's been a custodian of my life, my whole life. Um, And we repaired. uh, And by then I was 
dedicated. I remember I went to I went to university and one, one of my uh, essays I got back an English essay and the the uh, English tutor said wrote on it you act much better than you write go and be on the stage oh. <laughs> which I thought was really helpful I mean because I went <laughs> right well that's pretty clear um and so I just did as many plays as I could at that university and then I started auditioning I got into Whopper and VCA and Went to those, went to VCA in the end and uh, came out and just never stopped working, but mainly on the stage until I was about 33, I remember, because I I had Grace and then I got my first real TV gig, which I think you just talked about, Blackjack, right? Um, That was my first lead on television. And Peter Andrakidis, the director of that, I remember uh, he picked me and I couldn't believe it and I got to work opposite Colin Friels who taught me a lot and then I did a play with Colin and Judy Davis Victory at the STC and learnt uh, so much doing that as well and then we went back and did more blackjacks and then from that I think I got Crownies and then I got the spin-off of Janet King and it just kept rolling and then I got closer to my creators Mm. Really close to Andrew and Bevan Lee, obviously, who wrote A Place to Call Home. And all my shows went for season after season after season after season. I was, wow, we're really going to, we're going to do this again. Amazing. And building audiences and, and a love all around the world. You accumulate people with you that enjoy, I guess, the way you deliver story, enjoy the stories themselves. The stories impact you and you impact the stories and... It's just, it's just one long journey, isn't it? I've got to say, uh, one of the things that is striking because I, I have your resume in my in my notes is that these shows that have just come back season after season after season, and that is is a real uh, a theme in your career and such a testament to the fact that audiences were were demanding more and wanted more, and that those productions were able to be made. One of the things you said a moment ago that that really struck me was around channeling grief into performance and into artistry and for artistry to be a a place where you can take grief. The flip side of that to me that sort of occurs when I think about a lot of the more serious, as you say, uh, characters that you've played is that sometimes work can also create trauma and create harm and create grief for the people that are having to create the work itself. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how your own experience of, no spoilers, everyone, but shooting scenes where the character you're playing dies or that the character you're playing is dealing with, you know, criminal questions that are dark and difficult and Mm -hmm. very hard for most of us to take our minds to. And I think most of us just choose not to. Mm. And suddenly that's your job. How do you protect yourself in those circumstances? The duty of care is to the story that you're portraying. And it's mm. your job to, to some extent, and obviously the world has changed a lot in this, as we all know, um, is to go through that for that person that you're, you're emulating, I suppose. Stage is really the place where you need to be careful because you, re, you relive it moment to moment. 
And mm. if you're like me, once I walk on and the lights are up, I don't, Marta's not with me. She's, she's the custodian of the technique and the tools that I have. But I am that person for that audience because they turned up that night. They turned their phone off for at least an hour, maybe even two. What a commitment. Right? And they are there. And if you don't turn up, you're cheating them. So that is where you do need to be careful. So I'll talk about theatre because that's an easier place. I have techniques in place. So as I start putting my makeup on, I have a soundtrack that suits where my character begins. So if she has a lot of pain in her, I'll play something really um, difficult. Like when I did Deep Blue Sea Mm. at the STC, I had to play a woman who when you first meet her has just tried to take her own life. And so I would play, I don't know, Nils needs to know this, but I played Nils Frame, who is an extraordinary instrumental artist. So no words, but just sounds. And when he plays his sounds, you can hear the effort in the playing. And I thought for my character, it was the effort of life that had become too much. So when I would hear him change the key on the piano or crank the organ, which is what he does when he performs, it's manual labour, I would think of my character having to get up in the morning and put on her shoes again and go out that same door. And that would, as it's doing to me right now, elicit an emotional response of, of deep sorrow. And that's not my sorrow, that's her sorrow that she has the burden to hold. And I can actually feel my heart right now is is slightly aching because that's where you put yourself into, you put yourself into that trauma. And then you walk out there and you either have to bury it so that it comes up three hours later at the end of the play, and that was what was odd (laughs) about this play, is I had to start there and then reverse her into hope. And that's what was left with the audience because Terence Radican's partner had taken his own life and and he was trying to process that. What if he had have changed his mind and decided to live? So that was the message of this play. And uh, so then at the end, I ended with hope, but I still had her, her journey t- to the rest of her life that I didn't get to play out. So I would uh, hold hands with my actors, my fellow actors, for the curtain call and I would literally (laughs) feed off their energy and then with applause it gives you back your life because it's actually, it's a letting go. That's that's what that symbol does. That energy lets the air out of the room and so it renews the space. That's what applause is for. It's not to say thank you. I don't think it's to break the spell. So it creates a a schism, if you like, and it says, and now we're back into our lives. So then I would go in and I would take off my costume and put it in the wash bag and I would have a shower. And I would shower for probably too long for climate change. So I have to change that routine and probably just have a bucket now and (laughs) splash my face. (laughs) But... um, And then I redress in me and it's gone. And I realise my job is done for the the night. I I find that captivating. I am someone who has grown up adoring every element of theatre and the number of times I've been that person in the audience and I have never had words around that sense of, it's almost like an exhale that comes 
when something is over yes, and it's a realisation you've probably held your breath for a little bit too long yeah. for a lot of it because you are completely in it as the audience member and the idea of applause as a, I don't know, a letting go and a, a reminder that actually that's not, you're not living that, people you love aren't living that, it's not real, it was just, it was just real for a couple of hours is a, is a beautiful way to describe it. Yeah, it's a release. I want to finish with just one final question, Marta, and that's about the fact that you are an incredible actor who I know so many of our audience are very familiar with. You know, they're used to welcoming you via their television set or into their homes or going to see you in the theatre. But your roles are not only on screen in the creation of, of Bay of Fires. You are part of what feels to me a a new generation of women in film and television who are taking on incredible leadership roles as well as acting roles and who are creating their own work, producing their own series, who are involved from the very first minute of conception to Mm. uh, sinking their hearts into the uh, production and then into the promotion when it comes to that point. What is your hope for the next generation of women who are coming up as actors in Australia in terms of what will be possible Mm. within the bubble of their careers? I think knowing your worth is really interesting. Learning to self-advocate, that's also really interesting. I hadn't really done that until I had to go into the rooms and really raise the finance Mm. for this show and really pitch the idea with me in the centre of it. Actually, it's an incredible ensemble. That's no doubt about it. So, But I, I was the one sitting there pitching it in, so I had to learn how to be okay that I was going to be the motor of it in the first season anyway. Um, so that was new for me to understand that I could do that and it would be safe. Uh, to do that, that you wouldn't be laughed out of the room. Who do you think you are? And if you do have a really great idea, my advice is to hang on to the IP, it's called. It's intellectual property. And really uh, hold hold it. So get a, an entertainment lawyer to negotiate for you. Don't do it yourself. Because what you can do then is you stay in creative control. And then it really will be your vision, you know, uh, and that is important because authenticity these days is everything. They can sniff mm. it if it's come in but someone else has taken over it and, it and it seems distorted. So I know what I don't know and I'm really clear about that in every conversation. If something comes up that I don't understand and I know I should understand it, I say, I'm terribly sorry but I actually don't know what that means. Would you mind explaining that to me? And the amount of times I did that in these very high-powered meetings, I watched people go, oh, she's willing to learn. And that's, that's great because mm. I can tell her that. Mm. And so I'm important in this conversation as well. And so you come at it as a, as a collaborator, not as an authoritarian. Because those days, are, well, frankly, they're over. And also uh, nobody learns or grows in any other way. And so, yeah, it is important to listen and continually learn and know what you know, put it on the table because uh, 
Everyone is unique and they come from the place that they come from and with the right intentions, I think that's the way to make it work. That would be my advice for what it's worth. <laughs> oh, for what it's worth. I, I mean, it, the the simple uh, sentence of stay at the centre of your own story uh, mm. is going to stay with me. Thank you so much for your time on the weekend briefing and very good luck for tomorrow night's premiere of Bay of Fires. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been delightful to have a chat. That's it for my conversation with Marta Dusseldorp. I want to say once again that you need to watch out for Bay of Fires, which premieres on Sunday the 16th of July on ABC television and on iview. Very briefly in our conversation, Marta spoke about a play which uh, mentions the subject of suicide. If hearing that element of our chat brought up any concerns for you or if you just need someone to talk to please call lifeline on 13 11 14 and don't go away the weekend list is coming up next it's weekend list time helen smith is here and as usual folks she and i have been watching listening and eating our way through australia to bring you the best possible things to do this weekend helen's going to kick us off This week, Jam, my first recommendation is the Louis Thoreau podcast. Now, I only just realised I'm the biggest fan of Louis and I just realised I've been saying his name wrong my entire life. I always said Louis Thoreau, but it's Louis Thoreau, like you threw something. Roo like kangaroo. Yeah, because the only reason I knew this is because I started listening to his new podcast, which is what I'm recommending, and I was like, oh, my God. I have been saying his name the wrong time. Oh, it was just, it was quite embarrassing. Anyway, but it is his new podcast. It's kind of like what we do on the weekend briefing. They have profiles, they have features and conversations with interesting people. And like Tan France from Queer Eye, one of my favourites. Great yes. combo. And then I also just listened to this one with Amelia de Moldenberg, who does the chicken shop dates and she's become this social media powerhouse and like red carpet queen. And it was so fascinating to hear their dynamic because Louis actually went viral on her show with the, um, my money don't wiggle wiggle, it folds. Oh my, no, what is it? <laughs> it's my money don't jiggle jiggle, it folds. Like <laughs> rehash that. And it was just like these two generations colliding and it's amazing. And I just really enjoyed listening to the chat with Amelia because even though she's like, She's only, I think she's only just 30. She's just so sure about her work. She's so sure about what she wants to do, how she wants to do it. And it was just really refreshing and just like, yeah. Like, it was just cool to see one of like a legend like Louis, who I love, and also like Amelia, who I love, having this conversation and their dynamic, their banter. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And Yeah, not only do you learn how to say Louis's name properly, you get to listen to some great chats. So that's my first recommendation. Wins across the board, everyone. Pronunciation lessons and some entertainment. Um, I want to recommend something that is probably as different as it could possibly be, and that is that I have come across this brand. I've paid for everything I bought from them, obviously, folks, uh, called Cardigang. Not Cardigan, Cardigang, as in we're a gang, folks. We're working together. They send these knitting kits to people like me who've always imagined themselves as someone who could knit but cannot 
to save themselves. Like I don't know how to cast on. I don't know how to cast off. I don't know the difference between a pearl and a plane and a anything, but I love knitted stuff. I have a vision of myself as the kind of person who makes blankets and beanies for people's new beanies babies, not beanies. The beanies are new because they're made by me. The babies are new because they're made by someone else. That is my vision. And yet I have never been able to execute it because I can't knit because it's too hard. Anyway, these people, they're helping me. They, you buy these little kits online. uh, They just, they just send it over to you. They also do workshops and things, but I'm not doing that. I'm not embarrassing myself in front of people, but they send you this bag and it's got the wool and all the needles. And then they have all these little, very short, sharp YouTube videos. So when you get stuck, which is what I do, and you go, but what do I do now? You just, you just, you look at this little video and they show you how it from lots of different angles and zoomed in. And, uh, so far they are fixing all my mistakes, which is very impressive. Anyway, Carter gang, they're very cool guys. You somehow make knitting sound cool, Jam. <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> I love that. It was like a foreign language. I didn't know what you were talking about at the start there, but <laughs> I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, so my second recommendation is because it's, it's so cold. It's still so cold. We're still in winter and it feels like it's never going to end. But I love to eat warm food in winter, like carby, yummy, warm food. Uh, but I also am trying to eat my greens and it's somehow, it's sometimes, it's sometimes hard, but I have this warm uh, chicken salad. So it is making me feel healthy, but don't worry, there's still potatoes in there to, to like have my carb load. <laughs> but it's just chicken breast and you can pan fry it, serve it up, put any seasoning you want. And then you also thinly slice potatoes and you can put them like I do. I put them in the air fryer. Like I put everything in the air fryer and you crisp those nicely up. And then all you have to do is whack on some green beans, steam those up, put a little bit of butter so they're yummy and then put it in a bowl of spinach, put everything on top, a little a bit of avo and then any dressing you like. I like a creamy dressing with this one. You can even do a pesto creamy dressing. But it's Ooh, so easy and you feel healthy. You're getting some protein. You're getting some carbs, some greens, and it's warm as well. Don't heat the spinach up, though. That's weird. Uh, just have the spinach and pop everything warm on top. <laughs> there we go. That is my warm chicken salad if you if you want something, something in your meal list this week. <laughs> that actually sounds delicious, and I'm very into the idea of the pesto dressing. So thank you, 10 out of 10, for that one. Folks, I want to recommend another podcast This one's a bit of a heavier one, but it's a really important one to listen to. I've talked about this before on the weekend briefing that I've been involved with a podcast called There's No Place Like Home, which is created by future women and it's an exploration of family and domestic violence in this country. It's back for season two. Season two's just dropped this, the first episode's just dropped this week. This season is more practical, I suppose, and that's a weird word to use in this this context, but the focus is all around the fact that when it comes to domestic and family violence, we all feel kind of helpless, but that the data shows us that more than half of family violence survivors will open up to their family or friends before anybody else. And so because the alarming rates of family violence in Australia are so devastating, the chances are there is someone in your life who you care about who is having this experience. It might be you. And if that's the case, then you want to know what to do if if they ever do open up to you. And if you're looking at a friend's relationship and or a loved one's relationship and you feel like it, something's not right, but you're not sure how to raise it and you're not sure 
what's the difference between a green flag and a red flag and what those subtle signs are. That is what this season is all about. It's all about the real subtleties of uh, the emotional abuse that can can often lead to physical uh, violence and financial abuse as well. It is a hard listen, but it's an incredibly informative listen. You'll hear from survivors, you'll hear from experts, you'll hear from researchers, uh, and you will get really practical, like down to scripted, how do I raise this with this person I care about? I have found it absolutely affirming and important listening to it. And I'm so proud of the team who made it. It's called There's No Place Like Home. It's season two. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And I will add, just because of the subject matter we've just chatted about, that if you are someone who wants someone to talk to and is concerned about your own relationship, you can always call 1-800-RESPECT, which is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's 24 hours and there will be someone who can help you out. That's it for the weekend briefing for another week. Thank you so much for giving us your company again. We loved, we loved having you. We always love having you. Uh, if you would like to make sure you never miss an episode, best thing to do is to download the listener app and follow us there. You can also follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.